see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Welcome back everyone, this is the end of the year episode of Ready for Close Up and I'm live here with Andy in my kitchen. Welcome Andy. Hi Sam. And we wanted to talk about our year in movies, 2021, the second year of the pandemic. What did we see, what did we like, what were we disappointed by, what were some high and low lights of this another very unique special year at the movies. So. Andy, if you had to describe 2021, how was that for you in terms of what you've seen, what you've experienced? I think for me it was great to be back in movie theaters again. I think we had a, another pandemic year, but I think in the second half of the year, a lot of great movies came out that were postponed due to the pandemic. And finally, we could see them in the cinemas. I'm thinking of the long-awaited James Bond movie, for example, No Time to Die, Definitely. or also... Dune, for example, the very hyped House of Gucci. So I think there were a lot of movies coming to movie theaters again after a long while. And for me, I would say my movie year was therefore also very concentrated on the second half. Mm -hmm. I remember when we did the episode on our first highlights of the year, I think there was Promising Young Woman and a number of movies that were the kind of the first that we got to see at the cinema. So for me, it was kind of a a two-part year. It felt like mm -hmm. the first times you went back. I think I saw uh, Druk as well, a promising young woman at the time. Later on, the father um, in the summer. So that that was the first batch, and then it was the same for me. It was also these big highlights. I was looking forward to the blockbusters that came back with you and with Bond, House of Gucci. So same sequence for me. Yeah. So what were some highlights? Do you have like a favorite movie of the year of the ones that you've seen? I think from the ones I've seen in the cinema, I would probably say Dune, because this was really a movie that I loved. I think we also had a whole episode dedicated to it. So um, yeah, I, I think it was really a movie that blew me away. I think the visuals were super strong. It had a stellar cast. It had really a unique voice to it. Yeah, I think this was really a great movie. I really loved it. Um, so I would say this was definitely one of the highlights, if not the best movie of the year. What about you? Well, I have to agree that was definitely a grand, unexpected cinematic experience. I knew mm. it would be big visually and so on, but it was really the balance it struck between small scenes, very intimate scenes, then as opposed to the, the real visual and also the audio overwhelming that it created. It was impressive. I mean, I would have to go for Bond, clearly, mm. because mm. on the one hand, I was looking forward to it immensely for those two years that have been postponed and, and longer, of course. So it was the next Bond, but then it also turned out to be a highlight in terms of an unexpected, surprising and quite moving experience as a Bond film and as a film in itself. It, it, it was both. It was the anticipation, but then also realizing once it was out how good it was and then I saw it repeatedly five times up until now. Okay. <laughs> and it just got the Blu-ray, so I'm going to watch it again at home. So definitely it was, a, it was a double surprise for me. So I would have to say, personally speaking, of course, it would have to be no time to die. Right. If we take the opposite of all the movies that you were able to see at the cinema, what was your low light? the most disappointing movie of the year. I think it's a bit of a toss-up between two movies from directors who I usually quite like. 
I think a disappointment for me was clearly uh, the French Dispatch from Wes Anderson. Uh, it was a movie that I found was very convoluted in a sense. I think it offered nothing new on the plate. I think the visuals, yes, of course, it has become almost an adjective by now that it's very Wes Anderson, the visuals, this little dollhouse aesthetic, very detailed, very quirky. But I found it was story-wise quite messy. I think there were six ideas for movies in one crammed together. I didn't really found it entertaining. I think this was the biggest disappointment of this movie, that it was not funny enough. And all these actors, these huge stars who star in this movie, I think they were not really used to great effect. Mm -hmm. So for me, I, I did not enjoy this movie at all. I found, found it very yeah, boring in the end. Despite all these ideas and all these visual ideas floating around in this movie, I found it was very boring. Mm -hmm. Another disappointment, unfortunately, I would say, was also the new movie by Pedro Almodovar, which was Madres Paralelas, which I also found not that interesting. Uh, it's a story of two mothers who are pregnant at the same time and then their lives are intertwined. It veers to the melodramatic, like, like very often with Almodovar movies. And despite Penelope Cruz giving a very good performance, I think the movie never really takes you anywhere. And the, the connection with the national consciousness, I think, was also a bit heavy-handedly done. So I think these two movies were disappointments from my end. I have not seen the new Almodovar movie, but I would have to agree with the French Dispatch. I think if we look at what Wes Anderson did, especially with the Grand Budapest Hotel, mm -hmm. where everything that you mentioned worked out perfectly, the star ensemble and the historical context and just the density of references, historical and film history-wise, then this one was just like five levels too much. There were so many references and I also didn't find the context of this news magazine or this uh, magazine interesting at all. Not at all, no. And people didn't come out, stars didn't really shine in their roles. They were just there and you were kind of ticking them off and say, oh, there is this guy, there is this star. But it was not working out as well as Grand Budapest Hotel did. So that was kind of the highlight for me when he did Grand Budapest Hotel. And so, of course, you're coming into this expecting a similar chemistry. And it was too overwrought, too overworked. Too overdone, yes, exactly. Another, I wouldn't have to say a low light, but two movies that I've recently seen that did not quite live up to my expectations were also by directors that I generally like. So there was The Hand of God by uh, Sorrentino, which I liked half. Mm -hmm. And for me, which fell into two parts, and I think we have had similar impressions where I loved especially the first half, but then the second half had a shift in, in mood, in atmosphere, in, in tone that I didn't really get and appreciate. And also, I think Ridley Scott's House of Gucci, I had higher expectations in. I was expecting this camp fest based on the trailer that, that we had all seen and uh, already had some, some lines from that trailer mm -hmm. that everyone was mm -hmm. kind of repeating online. So I expected it to be this, this uh, camp highlight and it turned out to be quite undecided as well. 
taking too long for its story to develop and I was expecting this to be about the murder case and about the Lady Gaga character at the center of a media storm and this turned out to be just at the very end of the movie. So I wouldn't say those are major disappointments but I expected more based on trailers, based on directors, based on stars. But I think you had a slightly different take, at least on, on House of Gucci, didn't you? Yeah, I, I think I would agree that the hype was clearly there. I think that when the trailer dropped, everyone was like creating these memes and all these lines and impersonating Lady Gaga's bad Italian accent. <laughs> so I think there was really um, a high level of expectation there. And I would agree with you in that sense that the movie doesn't really live up to these expectations. And I would also say that the movie is tonally insecure. It's not really, it doesn't really know where to go with the story. And I also think the actors in there, they play in different movies. I think positively surprised I was by Lady Gaga, I would say. I think she really has a good star persona, a good charismatic presence. And she really carries the movie, I would say. I think she, I was positively surprised by her. I think she has good chemistry with Adam Driver, her mm -hmm. co-partner. But then I think there are things like, like Jared Leto, for example. He plays the, the cousin, basically, of Maurizio Gucci. And he has this very disturbing Super Mario Italian accent. <laughs> what the was wrong with the Jared yeah, Leto? Yeah, it's a chic. <laughs> I, I think if you play a character like this all the time, and all the other characters don't, it's just off. Mm -hmm. And I also think Jared Leto, I think he, he thinks he's this great method actor, but he just comes off as, as a clown. Mm -hmm. and, and people are laughing at, at moments that they should have, shouldn't have laughed shouldn't at. Shouldn't have, exactly. Yeah. And I think this is what the movie is not really convincing in, because these tonal shifts are very, very disturbing there. However, that being said, okay, the accents, it wasn't re the accents didn't really bother me. I think they were all off, they were all wrong, but I think <laughs> you get into it after a while. And I was surprised how entertained I was by the movie in the end. Fair enough. I think you can say really Scott, he knows what he's doing. He, he pulls it off, but I think the script should have been better. And I think Lady Gaga deserved a better movie mm -hmm. than she's actually in, in the end. I think she's really giving her all and the look is nice, but as you said, it's not as campy as it could have been, it's not as punchy as it could have been, it's not as tight as it could have been, mm -hmm. but all that being said, I think the movie's two and a half hours long and it didn't feel that long, mm -hmm. for me at least. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it was entertaining, it's a movie with many flaws, but um, I was entertained. Mm -hmm. The tonal difficulties, I think, were, were what bothered me about both House of Gucci and Hand of God, where I felt those directors had moments where they were cl clearly more in their style. I guess Wes Anderson as well, mm -hmm. uh, where their style really came through all the way. And I felt what Sorrentino did with uh, La Grande Bellezza, where he really defined an entire new universe of how to communicate in a film, mm -hmm. was only partly there in Hand of God. And I also felt with Ridley Scott, he had some clear highlights in his career that, that, went, that were very consequential. If you think of Alien, if you think of Gladiator, very different movies, but once he picked a genre, he would sometimes do genre-defining movies like Blade Runner uh, or Alien uh, or Gladiator. But here he somehow didn't create anything that I understood as any particular genre. I wonder what you thought of The Hand of God, because we talked about this prior to this recording. Did you also feel that Sorrentino was 
only there in bits and pieces and somehow then didn't quite know what kind of movie he was about to make. Because it, it does start out as this fantastic comedy. I remember laughing at uh, this family portrait that the movie begins with. Mm -hmm. And then obviously there's some changes and some dramatic events in the story that, that turn it into something completely different. Did you feel Sorrentino had his signature style despite all this? I think he did, but I think it's also because he copies Fellini so much. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of, of Fellini referencing in, in the visual language, Sorrentino always does, and he also does it in, in this movie. But I, I really enjoyed this 80s Naples youth, this family style, this, this, this family gatherings. It's very Italian, it's very Southern Italian, and it's very funny, but I think he he references too much Fellini, he's losing it a bit in this symbolism of images of, of I think also the gaze on, on female bodies. I think he also needs to be a bit careful on this one. Because I, I, it's very old-fashioned. It's very old-fashioned. I think it's, it's also not adding too much and mm -hmm. having a naked woman in a picture sometimes. Yeah, I think as you said, I think the first half is very funny, very snappy and then the movie loses me and I think it also loses the story a bit. Mm -hmm. um, I think I was a bit not disinterested, but I think he, the movie drags on then mm -hmm. after a while. So this, this coming of age of the main character of this young boy, who's basically an alter ego of Sorrentino himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some scenes are very heavy handed, are very clunky in a way that it's okay, this is now what does this mean? I think also the whole sex scene with the old lady, the old neighbor, I think it's very, it tries to be something more than it actually is. And I think Sorrentino, sometimes he is able to get out of this. So he's able to create really movie magic with images that have a double meaning or are heavy on symbols. And sometimes it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And especially if he doesn't go for that kaleidoscopic style, which mm -hmm. worked so well in Grande Bellet, so you didn't need direct thread going through the movie. It was all about these single scenes that came together as a portrait of a society. And I felt in Hand of God that was starting it with this uh, family and their surroundings, and they could have stuck with that. Mm -hmm. But then in a way, the autobiographical things, obviously with this uh, terrible death of his parents in the middle of the movie, that somehow didn't make sense if you didn't know that that was what Sorrentino experienced himself. And then the movie somehow was lost to me. I didn't it's quite a tonal get what shift, it's, yeah. What it wanted yeah. afterwards. It's a strong tonal shift. It's still a good movie, I would say, but I think probably not his best. Mm -hmm. So, Sorrentino, stick to your guns and really, Scott, maybe figure out what kind of genres you finally want to make because he was also doing The Last Duel this yes, year. Yes, exactly. So I, was, I was about what to the say. Heck? And, and The Last Jewel, I would say, ranks very high in my list of, of the best movies this oh, year. Oh, really? I haven't seen it. It's really, really good. So I, it's interesting that he has this very splashy House of Gucci movie, which got a lot of press coverage and a lot of star power. And then The Last Jewel flew a bit under the radar. And I think it's the better movie because it also stars Adam Driver. Matt Damon and Jodie Comer, and it's a medieval rape story, basically. It's a story, uh, it's based on facts or on historic events in medieval France, where a knight and his wife, they have a squire, they have a friend, and he's, this squire, played by Adam Driver, is raping the wife, played by Jodie Comer, and then she accuses him of rape, and then there is this royal decree that only a duel can decide between the men, of course, a duel to death, basically. 
who was right and wrong. And I think despite being a night's movie, the movie makes these parallels and connections to the present day, to, to rape victims, which I think is a very important topic these days as well. Also with in the wake of um, Me Too and all this, like if you believe the victim or you don't. And I think the movie can, is, is despite being the, the historic setting, it's very actual and very modern. It has this interesting Rashomon narrative. I wanted to ask you about that because a friend of mine told me about these three perspectives. That exactly. tells the same story with, and I was reminded of course of our discussion of Kurosawa mm-hmm. and of Bergman where they show different perspectives. And did it remind you of that? Was it, I don't know, an homage to that as well? I think it's probably less of an homage, but more than a narrative technique Scott uses here. So he's really showing the same story shown from the three different perspectives of the three characters, main characters. He also makes it clear that the female view, Jodie Comer's character, is is the truth. So it's really interesting then to to see the three perspectives from Matt Damon, from Adam Driver, from her, and it, it, it keeps the movie interesting. I thought this narrative trick basically to tell a story also enables him to unveil more details or how one character perceived the situation and the other one completely different. Mm-hmm. So I think all in all, also this movie is two and a half hours long, but I thought it was very beautifully filmed also. I think there you, you talked before about this director's touch. I think he really brings some gladiator moments in there. Mm-hmm. Um, really strong choreography also of the fight scenes and great actors. Mm-hmm. So The Last Duel, I think, was a bit of a dark horse this year. Mm-hmm. I think man, not many people have seen it, but I would highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. And just by a director who keeps on giving, you know, he has done so many different movies, so many uh, classics, some hits and, and some misses, obviously, but uh, having two interesting movies in one year is exactly. quite a Exactly, he keeps feat. on going, Ridley Scott, so, mm-hmm. and I think he's, the next one he's doing is also, is a, I think, a story about Napoleon, so oh, I wow. think we can be, <laughs> can be uh, excited about this one as well, so. Uh, Looking forward to that one as well. Yeah. In terms of performances, we mentioned a couple of actors, actresses, were there any standout performances for you this year? I was immediately thinking, of course, if I may start, maybe a uh, performance we have talked about in a previous podcast, uh, Anthony Hopkins mm. in The Father. But I think that almost goes to the previous year almost. because he did receive the Oscar beginning of this year, but I saw the movie in the summer. But since then, what would you say were standout performances if you had any that stuck out to you. You mentioned Lady Gaga, but were there others? I mean, we also talked about this movie, but I think uh, Mats Mikkelsen in in Druk, Mm -hmm. another round, I think was a really great uh, performance. For me, as an old campy trash fan, I think I really enjoyed Emma Thompson in Cruella. (laughs) (laughs) This is maybe an unexpected twist, but I think I really, she gives this cruel, bitchy fashion designer in the 60s and she has these really snappy one-liners. And I think Emma Thompson is always great in what she's in. And I think in Cruella, she's really a little scene stealer. So that was a, a performance I really enjoyed. Well, spontaneously speaking, we would also have to mention a couple of uh, favorites that we had this year. If we talk of Bond, I think the Ana de Armas character mm, in yes. Time to Die, this Cuba scene that we mentioned repeatedly, I think, of course, was also a standout moment, kind of unexpected 
fun and just bringing a bond to the very best in, in just a, uh, one sequence. And then I also would have to say Daniel Craig's farewell performance as Bond stuck out to me because he really took his human bond to a new level in this movie with obviously all the twists and turns that No Time Did I goes through. I thought is definitely a memorable performance this year, whether you liked the creative decisions or not. Absolutely. And I think Craig really also brought some thespian quality to the character over his films. So I think he is a good actor and that's why he can also pull off these more emotional, more dramatic scenes where probably Pierce Brosnan would have struggled or would have made it less believable. So I think this was really a great quality to the Craig era where he's really also bringing an emotional depth to the character, right? Yes, and he prepared it for over all his films. Mm -hmm. So it was not that at the end they decided to do, let's do some emotion with Bond, but it, it came to a, in a way, logical conclusion, the beginning and, and the end. Another movie that I think I've just seen recently and I was really impressed by was Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. I haven't seen that one yet, but I've heard stellar reviews so far. I think it's a really interesting one because I think Jane Campion was always or is always very known to portray strong women. And in this one, she really tackles toxic masculinity, if you like. So she has with Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst and Cody Smith McPhee, really great actors also. It's a Western and it tells the story of 1920s Montana where there is a farm and two brothers who have this farm and one is Benedict Cumberbatch and he basically mentally tortures his sister-in-law played by Kirsten Dunst and Kirsten Dunst's character has a young son who's a medical student who's a bit effeminate, who's a bit softer and the movie really pits this softer young boy against the strong masculine cowboy of Benedict Cumberbatch. It has beautiful, beautiful images. I think visually it's probably one of the most beautiful movies of the year. Great performances and I think a really surprising twist. So it's a slow burner of a movie, but really tightening the grip around you as you watch it mm -hmm. um, to a great conclusion. So that one I would also put on, on the best list, definitely. And it might also be one that will gather awards next year, I would think. So I will definitely go and see that one, just haven't gotten around to it. Was there anything else you see maybe outside of the cinema circuit that you, you've watched or any TV shows or streaming that you could recommend or what was... There were a couple, obviously, of you know, classic old stuff that I keep watching again and again. But I think among the newer things, I also watched British series It's a Sin, about the AIDS crisis in the 1980s by the maker of uh, Queer as Folk. Mm -hmm. It was also just given the best show of the year, um, number one spot by The Guardian, and I think really, really well deserved. It's a five-part devastating and at the same time highly entertaining and, and fun account of this time with you know the regular bunch of partying people who come to London in the early 80s and then of course the pandemic hits and I think what um, the creators did not quite expect was how topical it would be mm. in the context mm. of the corona pandemic and I think many people also saw it from a different perspective because it did show what happens to a society that is hit with something they don't know with uh, fake news, with um, rumors of you know how this spreads and who's to blame for it, and all these terrible stories that were told, these rumors. But then it's also extra devastating because, of course, it, it shows these main characters that you closely connect to, 
how they you know partly get sick, partly uh, partly don't, and some of them then are being sent back to their families because they're the only ones that can officially take care of them, and those families sometimes didn't even know that these sons or daughters were were gay, mm-hmm. and then they come home sick to die. And it's it's heartbreaking. I was I think so destroyed after each episode, and at the same time you wanted to see how it continues, and in a way, you know, who would survive and who wouldn't. And it was perfectly done. This I think I've hardly ever seen that balance of complete fun and 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 camp and the 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 beauty of a certain era captured so well with with music and and the aesthetics and the locations, and then you you were so like thrown to the ground by things that happened. And so really, really uh, recommendable. It's also out on Blu-ray, on DVD. I think yeah, they showed it on British television a couple of times. And it was really a, yeah, kind of a, li- a life changer. Also for many who had lived through that era, who finally saw that era um, represented, represented properly on, on television, which is a little bit different than showing it on in a movie. Mm-hmm. But really where, where people probably saw this that normally would not be faced with um, that kind of material or story and by a very popular um, TV production team. So yeah, highly recommended. How about you in terms of series, streaming, anything outside of the cinema that you would really recommend? What did I see? I really enjoyed the Netflix miniseries Halston with Ewan McGregor about Halston, the fashion designer from the 70s. I think it really captures this era really well and I think Gregor gives a really powerful performance in this one. It's just four or five episodes long, so I think this you can really watch through. I also enjoyed The White Lotus, which is an HBO show about the guests of a five-star hotel in Hawaii with the, the staff who take care of them and the troubles of these guests, rich white people. So it's a, a satire, it's very biting, very sharp, also a bit grotesque. It's a really nice contrast between this beautiful imagery of Hawaii, of the island, of the hotel, and then these really weird tribulations these guests all have. And one of them is Jennifer Coolidge, for example. Uh, there's also Connie Britton in it and um, I think this is also a miniseries which is really worth a watch I would say. On the more lighter fare I think also Clickbait from Netflix was a good thriller series where a young father is captured and then there is a video of him popping up where he holds a sign up saying if this video has, has been seen by 5 million people or 5 million clicks basically I will die and the, the family then tries to solve the mystery around this uh, kidnapping and eventual murder. And this is a very David Fincher-esque TV show, I think, really a good... Uh, if it were a book, you would say a page-turner, but I think... <laughs> what do you call this? Yeah, what, what an, you episode call turner. an episode-turner. An episode-turner. non-switch off. binge-watching, exactly, right. that's it. So this one, I would say, is, was also a pleasant surprise this year. I also enjoyed some some other things. I would just continue, you know, seeing Sex, sex Education mm-hmm. season three come out. Also, so a lovely thing. I think also because you didn't expect that to happen so soon. I think with the pandemic, you also expected those series and those productions to be postponed indefinitely. And I think we were also afraid that there would be a kind of a movie gap mm-hmm. of some kind. And now productions have just moved elsewhere and maybe are postponed a little bit still. And I think, of, of course, that also gives us a chance to look, still look forward to things that are coming out. And maybe we can also talk about this. What, what's, what's next? You just sent me the trailer of uh, Death on the Nile. Exactly. The Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot 
remake from one of our, I would say, favorite 1970s adaptations. And I'm very curious, but also very, very skeptical to see what that's going to be like. So that's one I definitely look forward definitely, to. Definitely, yes. I Are you say. as well? Yeah, I am. I mean, I'm, yeah, as you said, I think I really love the... 70s version with uh, Peter Ustinov and Mia Farrow and Betty Davis in it. So. And so many more. And Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury. We have to mention her. So the new trailer for this one also has a boasts a huge star assembly. So there's Gal Gadot in it. There is uh, Annette Bening. Uh, I think French and Saunders are in it as well. And um, the actor who dare not speak his name. Exactly. The actor who is uh, persona non grata now. So <laughs> we don't say... <laughs> The one who was in uh, No Call Me By Your Name. No, don't call him by his name. Don't call him by his name, so we won't. Um, he's also very expertly cut out of the trailer, I think. It's, it's fascinating how they But they still that. have to show this movie, so we all want to see it. Mm -hmm. um, so no, I think... And also um, uh, Eva Mackey from Ex-Sex Education is in it. So. Oh yes, of course. I saw yeah. her in the trailer and I thought that's her. So she's actually in the Mia Farrow role, so that's going to mm -hmm. be an interesting one. That's an episode we still have to do. I think those uh, Agatha Christie movies, I think that would be a great episode to, to talk about later on in the year. Exactly. So if we're starting to plan our 2022 year in podcasts. Exactly. And we'll definitely also talk about Death on an Isle, but is there anything else that you're already looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the... Lucille Ball biopic uh, Being the Ricardos Yes, starring Nicole Kidman and uh, Javier Bardem right? Exactly, Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem are in it and I this year I also listened to the excellent podcast from uh, Turner Classic Movies Plot Thickens mm -hmm. Thanks um, for that one, that's a great one episode, uh, Season 3 is basically about Lucille Ball and how she became this super famous comedian in the 50s with I Love Lucy and her life and Aaron Sorkin is now doing this, this movie with Nicole Kidman, so I'm really curious about that one as well, how this one turns out, especially now that I'm a bit more informed thanks to the podcast. Yeah, that's, that's a lot, I think, in a, in a year also to look back on, but also to look forward to. So how would you say 2021 fared as a, as a year in movies as a whole? I mean, I think it fared well, I would say. I think we had these big blockbuster tentpoles like the James Bond movie, like Dune, but also the Marvel movies continue to draw in lots of moviegoers, which I think is a positive effect. Mm -hmm. I think also now the most recent Spider-Man movie, mm -hmm. I think was the per first movie post-pandemic basically to, to get in one billion worldwide in, yes. in, in sales. So it's a great sign that cinema has indeed survived. Let's hope. I think <laughs> if this maybe is the sign... Maybe to tell. Exactly. Yeah. Or maybe this is also a sign then for studios just to produce these superhero movies, which I don't hope. Mm -hmm. So I'm really also hoping that we get smaller movies still, a little bit more independent fare, like The Power of the Dog or Promising Young Woman. So we also get these mid-range movies, not just uh, the blockbusters. But I think it was an interesting movie year. There were a lot of things to pick. You could have a wide range of movies while going to the cinema. So I hope this continues uh, in the new year. Mm -hmm. And I think also seeing the structure of movie releasing changed with uh, simultaneously on Netflix and the cinema or just a few weeks apart, even with Bond coming out so soon then to streaming and still at the cinema at the mm -hmm. same time. So you really see how movies have survived definitely and the need and uh, the want for them and the market for them. But we see now this two-part structure where they're trying to get them out on, on different platforms and get 
their their profits back as well. So I look forward to how that how that continues. But you you're right. We haven't saved cinema per se yet. It's still kind of a, an an open question how that will go on, especially once the once the pandemic is at a different stage. Don't even dare say that once it's over because it's uh, you know <laughs> still such a, a a story to be continued. Yes, exactly. To See be you next season. See you next season. Mm. Exactly. So thank you, Andy, for doing this wrap up on the year. I think that was fun and we definitely have quite a few things that we're ready and, and willing and able to do and I look forward to that as well thank you so happy new year to our listeners and to you and thank I look you. forward to our uh, January episode whatever it will be yes so thanks listener and join us again when we are again ready for a close up here's my wish for you hope my wish comes true happy